0: 10 years in Moab uh, before. Now we don't know how long the famine was going on before that but uh, we know that they were there 10 years before the famine ended. Um, It's a tale of bad choices, of hurt, of bitterness that sets the scene of hopelessness, of brokenheartedness but it is that dark setting that allows us to see and to appreciate the hope and redemption and love and second chances coming through then in the following chapters. They don't come through selfish choices. Hurt does. They does uh, emptiness comes through this selfishness. And remember Naomi at the end of chapter one, she says, Oh, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, for God is dealt bitterly with me, for I have I left full and have come back empty. Emptiness, that's the result of selfishness. And so that's the first 10 years and more, but then over the course of the remaining year, 18 months, God restores. And you have that wonderful principle that's set out in the book of Joel that says God will restore the years that the cankerworm has taken away. It's a wonderful promise of restoration. God is in the business of restoration. That's what he does. God is in the business of of taking that mess that we're so good at making and and restoring it. He puts the toothpaste back into the tube, as it were. He can do that. That's what God does. We're very good at getting ourselves neck deep in stress and worry and, and making a mess of things, but God can unscramble it all. And even though we may come to God and say, well, hold on, God, I was full, but you allowed me to get empty what's the crack with that god how come you i I, you allowed me to be full and then be empty but it's jeremiah 2 isn't it jeremiah 2 says what 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 have i done you know that you have found so offensive what have i done that your fathers have gone so far from me i was the spring of living water but you've decided to abandon that and, and and build broken cisterns cisterns that don't hold water you've decided to dig wells and try to fill it with stuff and make that your resource it's not working you can't keep them full And so God's saying, yeah, you're not full anymore because you've abandoned me. You're trying to do it yourself. Selfishness leads to emptiness. And sometimes we'll come back to God then eventually and say, but God, I'm too broken now. I've made such a big mess. I could never be refilled. But God says, no, I am in the business of making old things new. I'm in the business of remolding and reshaping people like the potter molds the clay. That's what I do. That's what he's saying. God never throws people on the scrap heap. Never. He never thinks, well, they're too broken for me to fix. Their their problems are too deep-seated for me to ever untangle. Oh, the problems and the hurt are are, are too deep-seated or too systemic for me to ever do anything. No. Listen, you cannot underestimate our God and the things that He can do. Nothing is impossible for our God. So it doesn't matter what, how bad you imagine things to be. You can go as dark and as deep as you, as you can possibly imagine. And no matter how entrenched your anger, no matter how gross or addictive your sin, nothing is impossible with God. And there is nothing, nothing, nothing in this world as powerful as the redemption that's available at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's just fact. And so they spend a decade in Moab. And then in chapter 2, we, there's just one day in Bethlehem, the field of Boaz. And then chapter 3 that we're coming to this morning is a night on the threshing floor of Boaz's field. And then chapter 4 covers maybe about a year, a year and a bit. There's a wedding, and then there's a, a, a pregnancy and a birth. So, so give it maybe, say, a year total. Ruth is a, a romantic book. But it talks about love in lots of different ways. Because there's not just boy meets girl, and girl fall in love with boy and love at first sight, but there's also the love between uh, Ruth and her mother-in-law uh, and the love that they have. And so there's love at all different angles in this book. And God is at scene, uh, behind the scenes, he's weaving it all together. And in Ruth, you don't read about, and God said, and God spoke, and God did this. All we hear is them talking about God to each other and making decisions, and yet God is excuse me, God is clearly weaving it all together, and we looked at the characteristics last week that we should be looking for in our romantic relationships, the things that you should aspire to have as a spouse, and the things that you should look for in a spouse, and hopefully I didn't get too many of you into trouble last week. Last Sunday night then, though, we, we closed off chapter two by looking how hope can change things. Naomi, who was once bitter and hurt And feeling the emptiness of her heart, starts to feel her heart being filled again. Hope can do that. Hope can just almost be like a switch. It's like you find momentum again whenever all you could do was just sit there and feel sorry for yourself. Well, what's the point? This is as good as it's going to get. This is just terrible. And then hope says, no, but things can get better. And hope is not just vague optimism or wishful thinking but it's a tangible hope a hope that wasn't just about things somehow maybe getting better or somehow she picks herself up by her bootstraps and gets going again but rather redemption can happen in her life not because she can redeem herself but because there is a redeemer and we were singing that before the children's talk hope is a person and in truth it's with Naomi that we start this week I had the song in my head. and I'll be honest, I know it from Mrs. Doubtfire, but it's from uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a find, catch me a catch. That's what Naomi is about to do. That's her role. She's going to be the Jewish matchmaker. And she sees Boaz being interested in Ruth, and she gets all excited. Oh, have I got a plan for you, or, or whatever it happens to be. And she comes up with this sanctified scheme. Christians, we don't scheme our plot, but we've got sanctified schemes. And she sets up her daughter-in-law with someone who's lawfully able to bring love and joy and peace and prosperity back to their family. Someone who was able to redeem all that they had lost over their 10 years in Moab. God restoring what the canker worm has taken away, the years that the canker worm has taken away. And it's because there is a goel, a kinsman redeemer. This is someone who by law can come and fulfill the unfulfilled duties of a deceased male relative and provide a home, an heir, and even legal entitlement to property and things that they'd forfeit. So chapter 3 is when Ruth pops the question. Yes, it is Ruth who pops the question, and that's where we're hoping to finish this morning. It may sound weird because sometimes we, we feel like we'll we'll have to defend the role of women in in the Bible. And yet here we see, um, we've already talked about Deborah this morning, but here we see feminism in full swing. She's proposing to him. She's taking the motivation. Sometimes we think biblical women are just these pretty wallflowers that don't say anything. They're just supposed to be there. And then it's the men who are the strong, kind of take charge kind of guys. If you think that, that, all that tells me is that you've never really studied any of the biblical women or you've never really studied any of the biblical men. Because time and time again in Scripture, we find that the women in the Old and New Testament are actually really strong, powerful, godly characters. So much to learn. They're not perfect. Of course they're not. No one's perfect. But there's so much that we can learn from them. And in fact, some of the men as well are, are, are weak and not as strong as they ought to be, certainly not compared to some of the women in their lives. And so it's Ruth who does the asking here, and yet, okay, hands up, it's not girl power or or feminism or anything like that here. This is a requirement by law. If Ruth wants Boaz to be her redeemer, she has to ask for it. A redeemer by law in Israel cannot just swoop in and forcibly redeem you. You can't do it. It's not allowed to. You cannot be redeemed against your will. You had to seek redemption. Now, isn't that interesting? Because so many people will say to me, Jeff, you know, listen, I understand what you're saying, but if it's God's will that I'll be saved, I'll be saved. I don't need to worry about it. It'll happen eventually. If I'm one of God's like, look, just stop right there. God is very clear. He says, if you seek me, you will find me. In the book of Acts, it says, repent so that your sins might be blown. In other words, what he's saying is that if you want to be redeemed, if you want to know Christ as your redeemer, you have to come and ask for it. Come and redeem you. Be my redeemer. And so Ruth and Naomi are planning, they're scheming on how to hook the fish. Um, Can we move that on, please? Uh, And then tonight we'll see how Boaz responds. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Should I not seek rest for you, that it will be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, put perfume on, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. But... When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Naomi is the matchmaker. She's concerned about her daughter-in-law and is concerned for Ruth long term. What will happen to Ruth when I am gone? And so she's trying to make sure that she's well looked after. She's scheming. In those days, marriages were arranged. Now, it maybe doesn't appeal to us today. You go and ask anyone in church in the 15 to 25 category um, and say, how would you feel about your mum and dad picking out someone for you to marry? Not just date, but marry. I would imagine all kinds of war that would be raged in that house. You know, when you're 15, 16, 17, you know, you're pretty convinced that your parents know nothing as it is. So now they're gonna pick someone for you to love for the rest of your life? Oof. Oh my goodness. You don't know NFM or whatever I, teenagers. I'm sure many of you, if not most here, married someone that your parents approved of. But would you have expected them to pick that person out for you? Or, you know, that first time whenever they awkwardly say, Oh, I hear so-and-so has a son. I hear so-and-so has a daughter. Uh, They can have as many sons as they want. They're not coming near me. He says, No, it's not happening. But in those days, marriages were arranged. Now, we don't do it in the West, but I don't think it's necessarily... Having that freedom to choose has particularly helped us when you look at the divorce rates and you look at the misery that is caused by family breakups down through the years and and the infidelity and, and all the rest of it that's there. Now, in fact, in India, Christian communities... Still arrange marriages for them. It's not like just a Hindu. It's a cultural thing. So even if in a Christian community, they're matchmaking on their children's behalf. And whenever I was there, I asked the question, "Well, how do you guys date?" And they says, "Well, we don't. We don't. We we meet that person. There's a period of courtship, and then we get married." And I remember thinking at the time, "But then you don't know the person that you're marrying." And then, of course, wisdom kicks in and you realize, well, that's pretty much true here as well, isn't it, right? I mean, you don't truly know somebody until you marry them. But in India, then, they say, so listen, don't knock it until you've tried it. We don't have the divorce rate that the West does. We learn that marriage is a commitment for life, that it will take work, it will take effort, and we learn to live and to love together. And that's the mindset that's here between Ruth and Boaz. There's a commitment already before they they get married to start the hard work, not to finish the hard work. You know, you may say you don't believe in arranged marriages, but I say it all really depends on who's doing the arranging. I believe in arranged marriages because I believe God arranged my marriage. I look at the provident hand of God in my life and I see how so, so much of what has gone on and how my ministry has developed and my life has developed and it wouldn't have happened if Ruth hadn't been there in my life and maybe she might say something nice about me I don't know but it all depends on who's doing the arranging if you're insisting on taking control or, you're, or are you going to allow God to arrange things it would seem Ruth was willing to trust now bear in mind She's not trusting her mother here. This isn't her mom that's sort of stepping in for it. This is her mother-in-law. Now, pause. Would you allow your mother-in-law to arrange your next marriage? Mm. The silence kind of says everything, doesn't it? See, this is the combination of human intelligence and divine providence. Naomi and Ruth are planning. They're forging a path. They're setting goals. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. Here's the hope. Here's what we're going to try and do. But look at it. This is wise. I meet some Christians, and they're almost allergic to planning and forward thinking. And it's scary. It's almost as if planning ahead is unspiritual to them. You know, they'll they'll say, look, I'm not going to apply for a job until God shows me which job I'm supposed to go for. And they're hoping for, you know, CEO level of some major company that that, they haven't worked a day in their life. I'm waiting for God to open up the door. He says, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get involved in the church ministries. I'm not going to sign up to anything because uh, I want to feel called before I serve. As if somehow we need to airlift you physically into a ministry or into a team or into a committee. I'm just going to wait until I feel led. Well, I believe that God gave us brains. And I believe God blesses those who uses the gray matter that he has given to us. If anyone lacks wisdom, the Bible says, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach." Which means then that if we believe that to be true, then we should act in faith then and not wavering. In other words, whenever I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do, I say, Lord, my wisdom is lacking. So I'm going to ask you, I need you for your wisdom. Give me your wisdom, Lord. And then what happens is I move forward, trusting that the insights that I have, the gut feeling that I have, and the instincts that I have, I'm acting with godly wisdom because he promised to meet the need. I've asked him for it. I believe that he's going to be good to his word, and I act. Providence does not eliminate human activity. There are three types of people in the world. There are people who make things happen. There's people who watch things happen. And there's people who have no idea what's happening. Ruth and Naomi were the first kind. I know plenty of Christians in the second and third category, but Ruth and Naomi are the first sort. They make plans. It's not unspiritual, but, but, but be flexible. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. That's not a Bible verse, but it is a biblical principle. You'll find it in James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you know not what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So in other words, we make the plans, but we also say we will do this if the Lord wills. We're going to be flexible. If something else happens, we're not going to force ourselves on ahead regardless. Trust me, you will live more happily. You will live longer when you're a wee bit more flexible with God's will. So Naomi says, shall I not find rest for you, a haven, a security, a place where you can find peace? What a picture of a marriage. I want to find a place for you to be safe. That's what marriage should be like, a place that is a haven for us from the stormy world. I, I said before Easter, Ruth and I will be married 10 years this December, and I have to say it's a lot better now than what it was at the start. Now, it's not that it was bad at the start, you know, or fist fights or, or anything like that, but it's a haven. And the longer you become aware of the stormy world, the safer that haven becomes. I heard about a girl who heard the story of Snow White for the first time, and she ran home to tell her mum. Now, the mum knew the story, obviously, and so sat patiently listened as she told the story of Snow White. And then then she gets to the end and says, and the prince ran in and kissed Snow White, and she woke up from the poisoned apple. And then guess what happened, mommy? Oh, well, dear, I. They lived happily ever after. No, they didn't, mommy. They got married. <laughs> Sad mindset to have. But Naomi isn't selfish here. She could have said, now, hold on a minute. My husband died too. Elimelech, Boaz is Elimelech's cousin or brother or whatever happens. to be. We, we don't know the exact kind of relationship, whatever the, the, it was. But it's through, it's through my ex-husband, Ruth. I should get it. I'm older. You could go marry any younger man. Don't you worry about you. But I, I'm older. I don't have that many opportunities. But here is a legal opportunity for me to be secure in my future. I should get Boaz. But this just never gets raised in Scripture. There's there's no selfishness here. It just doesn't seem to be a concern. It just doesn't appear. She never says, I'll marry him. You, you, you're not going to get someone who will love you like my little son did. So, so don't you worry about trying to find anyone. You'll get somebody. It doesn't matter. She can see that Boaz seems interested in Ruth. She, see, she can see that Ruth seems interested in him. And so we get the plan. We know where he's going to be. We know what he's doing. He's going to be up protecting the barley from bandits later at night after they have a feast. So get yourself dolled up. Get on the party dress. Get the good makeup on and head on up there. And it's interesting. Naomi is a very practical woman. in effect, she's saying, if we're going to do this, let's not give him any excuses to say no. Let's knock his socks off. You know, some Christians in some denominations will make up rules about how it's unspiritual to try and look beautiful. You know, don't wear makeup and don't, all other, those aren't my rules. Those are their rules. And it's, they take it from a verse at of First Peter 3 that's just out of context. Naomi goes the other way says let's make the effort when you go to israel even today on sabbath now sabbath isn't just the saturday <clears throat> sabbath is from the friday evening so when the sun goes down and it gets dark that's when sabbath starts sundown on friday night through the sundown on the saturday because in israel in jewish tradition the day goes from darkness to light not night today it goes from uh, darkness to light. It's a, it's a nice thing. It's a far more poetic, optimistic way of looking at things. But that's what they do. And so they, they finish work early in good time on Friday afternoon. And Friday night is traditionally date night in Israel. Uh, husband and wives will go out of their way to make themselves more attractive. The man will put on a nice suit, maybe a tie depending on his generation. The wives will put on their favorite dresses, their best jewelry. They'll get their hair all done. And, and What they'll do is is they they want to make it special. They want to look their best for that other person. What they're saying is, I want to present to you the best version of myself. I want to give you the best of me. It's unfortunate in some marriages that once they say, I do, they start to say, but I won't. It's not anymore. They say, well, I've bagged you. Now I don't need to try so hard. And so they say, look, I do, but I won't. the whole thing falls apart. And uh, one of my favorite things in the world is to see couples who have been together for a lifetime and they still only have eyes for each other. That is superb. Yet instead of trying to keep winning the attention of their spouse, sometimes you see people and they'll just demand to be loved without being lovely in return or lovable in return. You flip the switch on that. Let's take it out and put it into different circumstances and see the logic working on that. So you take a child who is misbehaving, okay, a teenager who's quite rebellious, and they're misbehaving, 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 getting in trouble at school, bad crowd that they're hanging out with, and it's bad, and it's bad, and it's bad, and and you say, listen, you need to change your attitude, son, you need to get out of this, this rut that you're in, daughter, you need to do something about this, and they turn around, and they say, you're my mom and dad, you should love me regardless of what I do, your attitude isn't, well, well, that's a really good point, no, your attitude is, the issue isn't that I don't love you. I do love you. But, but the frustration and the hurt and the heartache comes from the fact that you're losing the delight in loving them. That's the problem. That's the heart. You still love them, of course you do, but boy, it's hard work. Boy, it breaks you down instead of fills you up. That can happen in marriages. Love is still there, but the delight in loving has gone and We should try to make it easier for that other person to love us. We should make it enjoyable for people to love us and be around us, and we should make that effort to give them the best version of ourselves. After all, who's the person in this world who sees us at our worst most often? It's our spouse. Do you not think they deserve to see us at our best as well, that we make the effort? and it may, can mean an awful lot from someone to hear from you to say by your actions, look, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying. For you, I'll always try. It means an awful lot. Did you hear about the guy who fell in love with the opera singer? He didn't really know her all that well. All he had done was seen her from the back of the cheap seats through his binoculars. But such was her voice. goes, if I could marry that voice... I will live happily ever after. He didn't mind that she was a wee bit older and sort had a bit of a limp. That was fine. That voice. Oh, my goodness. So after a short romance, they got married. And uh, on, they went on their honeymoon. And uh, his mouth hit the floor whenever they were getting ready for bed that first night. When she took out her glass eye and put it in a wee container on the nightstand. And she took off the wig, the false eyelashes, unscrewed the false leg, took out the hearing aids. And in shock, he said, for good grief, woman, sing, sing, sing. See, he thought all that other stuff didn't matter. I better move on before I get people into trouble again. The matchmaker is trying to get Ruth is planning then on Ruth to say, look, all that you'll say to me, I, I will do. She, she makes this commitment. It's a verse of submission. It echoes chapter one. Whenever she says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Where you live, I will live. If, that, if this is how it works, I'm listening. Naomi, you tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Now think back to the last conversation that you had with your mother-in-law. Where Did you wind her up a wee bit? Stir the pot a wee bit. Did you kind of roll your eyes a wee bit? Or did you say, Mother in law, what you say I will do? She went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother in law had commanded her. So Ruth is obedient here. But you have to admit, it sounds really weird when it's not your culture, right? I mean, it's <coughs> not. But remember, this isn't Ruth's culture either. So this is all very strange for her, too, I reckon. I mean, Okay, get myself all dolled up. Yes, yeah, sign up for that. Wait, uh, get the hair done, get the eyes done, get the makeup done. Yeah, okay, yeah. This is yeah. This is how we all do it. This is how. We, and then, sorry, what? Feet. Uh, sn- s- wait for he's sleeping and then sneak up on. What? Am I going to get arrested for this? This seems very strange. This kind of sounds kind of stalker-like behavior. Uh, this is, is this. Do all Jewish people do this? It's, no, no, no. This is just for you. I imagine a few follow-up questions to this, at least. What happens if he smelly feet? Do I propose and then smell his feet? Do I smell his feet and then propose? This isn't e- I mean, it wasn't easy for Ruth whenever she proposed to me. Okay, okay. <laughs> Nobody believes that. Yeah, okay, so it was the other way around. I proposed to her, and my knees were knocking. They were not reliable at all. I was very nervous. So imagine what it's like for Ruth here going off to Boaz's camp. These men are guarding the harvest. They are armed. They're waiting for bandits to come. What if someone mistakes her for a bandit? What if someone lashes out? When Boaz had eaten and drank, his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. His heart was cheerful. He was content. It's a picture of well-being. There was a famine. Uh, for, for 10 years, and now there's a good harvest. This was the first time they had feasted in over a decade. You better believe that they enjoyed this. And they lay down information and protect the grain and rest for the evening, wrapped up, covered their feet. And so they take off their heavy clo- coats, uh, and then they kind of put it as a blanket around them. Because, you know, it's, it happens, nothing changes. It's just, you know, we all hate it whenever our feet get cold at night. So you always want to make sure your feet are wrapped up. This is what Boaz does. But if you uncover the feet, they're going to wake up because they're going to feel the chill on their feet. This is her proposal. I'll I'll just tie all this up uh, and then uh, we'll set us up for tonight. This proposal will give them what's called a leverite uh, wedding. L-E-V-I-R-A-T, a a leverite wedding. It comes from Deuteronomy 25, a specific set of circumstances between a widow uh, who has no son to a brother of her dead husband. Let me just read it. It's five verses. Jeremiah 25, verses 5 to 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother will go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom he, she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name shall not be blotted out of Israel. So that's the reason. The name continues in Israel. The the tribal uh, inheritance will will continue and will not get get diluted. Verse 7, If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then the brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I don't want to take her then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders. Listen to this. will pull the sandal off his foot and spit in his face and, shall, and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Maybe it rolls off the tongue better in Hebrew. I don't know. Why is this done? It sounds a strange rule. It it seems weird. It seems a wee bit freaky. Well, it ties family close. Men, you imagine that your older brother is going to marry someone. You're going to be very keen to see who they marry. You're going to be rooting that he marries an absolute stunner, a beautiful girl who, who can do all kinds of wonderful things because his nice girl could end up being your girl. So you're invested. You're rooting for them. And it brings families close. It brings them together. It makes them considerate because they're working as a team to get the best girl. Planning a wedding can be tricky. Uh, My family have a wedding in a few weeks' time, and there is drama because some people got invited and other people didn't. And then there's people saying, well, if they're not going, I'm not going, and blah, 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 blah. A load of nonsense. But this system of weddings keeps families close. They want to be close, they want to be involved because there's going to be an expectation and responsibility. You may not like your brother. You may not have enough time for him, but you're going to be invested. You're going to keep ties close because you may have to follow up. You may have to step in. And so you're rooting for him and his family. At midnight, the man who was startled, funnily enough, uh, turned over and behold a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? Sounds like a man who's in love. Oh, oh, oh. Here, here are you. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She's proposing. Spread your wings over me. Protect me. You are the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. And the language that she uses is familiar to us. And not only is is she echoing back what Boaz said to her in chapter 2 about being under the shadow of the wings of God, but, but there's poetry and symmetry here and points us towards what Christ the redeemer will do. Psalm 91, David writes about abiding in the shadow of the Almighty and then says, and he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. Jesus, in Matthew 23, is speaking over Jerusalem says, oh, I wish I could gather you under my wings the way a hen gathers her, 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 chicks under her, um, gathers her brood under her wings. And so, so, so many people have this idea that God's like this traffic warden who's kind of itching up and down the streets waiting just to give a ticket and kind of get them you know, suckers and he, he just can't wait to make people miserable but that, the, that's not the picture of the redeemer, that's not the picture that the bible is trying to give us, there's a redeemer here who wants to restore who wants to fill the emptiness in your life but also wants to cover you and protect you, who wants you to come in under their wings where there's warmth and love, and shelter from the world. We see it most clearly in Ezekiel 16. And God is speaking, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became This is what's happening between Ruth and Boaz. It is what happens when we come to Christ. We're empty. We need a Redeemer. There's nothing of value or of worth that we bring to it. We need joy. We need hope. We need restoration. And that comes in him. But notice again, we have to first come. Ruth had to come a certain way. If she went about it differently, Boaz would not understand what she was asking from him. She had to come to his feet and bow and then give him the decision to make. Will you be my kinsman redeemer? Will you redeem me or not? Folks, listen, there is only one way to be saved. And I know people don't like hearing this and and it rubs people up the wrong way, but the truth is simple. It's one way. You cannot earn it by being good enough because you'll never be good enough. And it bugs me because no one ever says, well, how good is good enough? No, are you trying to balance the skills? Well, how much weight do you... Des- who decides how much weight the good things get? How much weight do we decide how much the bad things get? Or are you a point system kind of a person? Or do you assign how many points you give each other? Says, well, you know, I, I did this, but I did this good thing, and I reckon that I should cancel that out. You know? you know? You sort of wonder, well, if you do a good thing, but you do it with a selfish motive, do you still get the points for it? You know? How does this work? Is this really how we're basing everything on. The only way Scripture says to have sins forgiven and to have a right relationship with God is by throwing yourself at His feet. And even then, you need to understand that. This is so important. People don't really talk about this, but we need to understand this. God has no obligation to forgive you. God does not have to forgive you. And yet He has promised, if anyone comes unto me, I will no wise cast them out. I will not reject them, But we need to understand this. He's under no obligation here. He doesn't have to, yet he chooses to. This is the love of God for us. There is no obligation here. So he does so because it is in his nature to love. He does this because it's in his nature to forgive and to redeem and to restore. So that means there's a right way to come and there's a wrong way to come to the Redeemer here. The wrong way will insist and demand. I ought to do, I should be. But the right way will say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Redeem me, restore me, love me, protect me, cover me in your mighty wings, spread your garment over me, make me yours, take ownership of my life. Now tonight, tonight we will see how Ruth's proposal goes down. Spoiler alert, she goes away happy. She goes away sure of where she stands with her Redeemer. My prayer this morning is that whenever you leave this hall, you can have that same joy, that same assurance, because you know where you're standing with your Redeemer. There's clarity. There's a peace. There's no questions. There's no, well, I'm not sure. You can be sure this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will strengthen our marriages, strengthen our relationships. Lord, for those who are tired and have given up hope, Lord, hope cannot be found in anyone other than you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would come into our marriages, come into our relationships, come into our friendships, come into our work friendships, come into our uh, relationships with our in-laws and uh, outlaws or maybe... But, Lord, that we would have these relationships with him, Lord, where we make the effort. Lord, that we, we take ownership and we take responsibility. Rather than simply demanding to be loved, we set about the business of loving. And we make it easier then to be loved. Lord, we thank you, though, that you love us with a unfathomable love. Lord, that even though we mess up so often and we make so many mistakes, your love never wavers. Your love never changes. It is consistent and it is faithful. And so, Lord, I I pray, Lord, that each one of us this morning would leave here knowing exactly where we stand with you Lord rejoicing in our walk with you rejoicing that even though you didn't have to you wanted to, you chose to forgive us and Lord for those who still don't know for those who maybe do know and know that they're far from you you know that they're maybe came in with no interest in knowing Lord, I pray that even now they they may be found at your feet saying, Lord, here I am. Redeem me. Lord, you've promised that those who seek you will find you. Lord, you have promised that those who repent will have their sins blotted out. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning there might be great rejoicing in heaven Because someone here fell at the feet of Jesus and met the Redeemer. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen. Folks, we're going to sing another song and then we're going to go straight into our time of uh, communion. Let's stand together and sing. going to stay with Ruth, because I could go through the same passage again this morning and show you how the way Ruth came to Boaz is the same way that we should come to the table. Number one, Ruth washed herself. That tells me that what we're doing is serious. We can't just rush in coming around this table in the same way that we wash our hands before we sit down to eat a meal because life and daily work has a way of making us dirty. We wash our hands before we eat a meal. Likewise, before we come around this table, we need to wash, to clean our our souls before coming and eating. It's serious. Number two, we see that Ruth anoints herself with perfume. That tells me not that it's serious, but that coming before the Lord is special perfume was expensive in those days and only used for the most special of occasions I can't think of a more special part of our church life together than coming around this table it's serious it's special but it's also sure Look at, at Ruth she, she changed her clothes she, she got all dolled up and she put on her best outfit but the idea here is that she was planning she was dressing to go to a wedding ceremony Folks, we come here to this table spiritually well-dressed. We're dressed in the robes of righteousness imputed to us through Jesus Christ. So we come confidently. We are saved not by works that we have done, but by the blood of Jesus. We come through him, and we know that when the marriage supper of the Lamb comes, we're going to be there because we're part of the church. The church is the bride, and when the bridegroom comes, it'll be ushered in, and we will feast in heaven with that wonderful. And that's what this is supposed to be. There's this picture of meals from Passover to communion to the marriage supper, and it's all pointing to the work that Christ has done. And so we come sure, we come confidently, because we know what the work of Christ has done for us. We are dressed appropriately in the robes of righteousness. We're ready for that marriage supper. It's serious. It's special. It's sure. Number four, she came and she bowed at his at its feet. It's submissive. She knew that she didn't deserve any kindness beyond what she was already getting in the fields of Boaz. But she came so, anyway, quietly, gently. In the same way, we come around this table quietly, reflective. It's not a time for us to boast and brag about how good we have been as Christians this week or to try and uh, be overconfident in everything. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so we come to remember that if it was not for the cross, if it was not for the blood, if it was not for the body that was broken, we would have nothing. Because at best, all we are is sinners saved by grace. But praise God, we are sinners saved by grace. So my question is, how are you coming to the table this morning? Because if you're coming with one eye on the clock... You're thinking about your dinner. If you're thinking about, well, I was going to say sitting in the sun, but maybe not at the end of the week. Listen, Scripture says that the only requirements to take part in communion is that you examine yourself. So before you take part in our communion service, examine yourself. Here's the test: Are you taking it seriously? Have you washed yourself before you came? time of prayer that we have now then's the time to wash get it out before God between you and him so you're ready to eat is it serious is it special to you is it special it ought to be it ought to be to remember what Christ has done or are you coming sure are you coming with confidence that you are saved and heading for the marriage supper or are you coming with pride Instead of submission. That's the criteria. Examine your own hearts. It's not for me to judge where you are. You can fill me easily enough. But judge for yourselves where you are. Be sure before you take part. And then savor coming to the Redeemer's feet. And rejoicing in the work that has been done for us. If you're more interested in the clock, slip out now. Slip out now. But if this is serious, if this is special, let's find the time do it right let's bow now and if someone wants to lead us in prayer then please do so as we rejoice in what god has done let's bow our heads folks and pray And so, Father, we come to your feet and ask, Lord, that you would spread your cloak over us, that we would know the joy and the peace and the warmth and protection and the assurance of knowing that we are yours. Lord, cast out fear, cast out doubt, Lord, that we might be free to love. I'm free to live for You, and for Your glory. We pray this in Your name, Amen.